0: entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is the last lecture in the series, given on December 16, December 1911. Uh, lecture 12, entitled Nature, the Evolution of Consciousness, and Reincarnation. Since there was time for only four lectures at this general meeting, it is certainly understandable that only a very short, and in a sense superficial sketch of what pneumatosophy might be can be given. It is natural that much has been so lightly touched upon in such scanty indications that a good deal more elucidation and detail are awaited. It may even be difficult in some places to see what the connection is between the subject and what we have been calling pneumatosophy. Yesterday, for example, it was shown how we advance from the soul realm or mental images on the one hand, and from our emotional life on the other, to regions whose whole nature requires that they be considered a part of the supersensible world. It was seen that this is what they are from the simple fact that the soul realm stops prematurely at a certain boundary line in relation to such matters. Even intelligent psychologists have had to halt at that point in their investigations of the soul. The kinds of concerns we encounter in imagination, inspiration, and intuition are, of course, familiar to Theosophists from other perspectives. Footnote: Steiner's early articles on imagination, inspiration, and intuition are collected in titled *The Stages of Higher Knowledge*. End. Quote. Excuse me. End footnote. Thus we can assume that the subject that has grown familiar from completely other viewpoints such as in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds is seen as justified when all the threads are followed that lead from the everyday life of the soul from mental picturing, the emotions and judging to imagination, inspiration and intuition. It is very natural that in order to advance from matters of soul to those of spirit, people pay closest attention to the aspect of soul most familiar with their own soul and spiritual life in attempting to gain self-knowledge of a soul's spiritual nature. It has been pointed out in these lectures that within Western development up to the nineteenth century and even until our own time, Humankind has found it difficult to recognize a fact that seems basic to us. The fact we are speaking of is that our human spirit passes through more than one earthly life. At the end of the second lecture we familiarized ourselves with the typical struggles exemplified by the psychologist Flor whose scientific honesty led him to ask how it could be that our eternal spirit could be thought to descend again and again into a physical body that resembles a kind of purgatory or a kind of dungeon or prison. Must we, he asked, regard everything that has to do with love relationships and the contrast between the sexes only as devices for imprisoning people's souls for the period between birth and death? In view of such sincere objection to the doctrine of reincarnation, it is necessary to ask whether Throschammer is taking one standpoint, that is, nothing more than that, one standpoint, and whether still some other viewpoint is impossible. We will have to grant Throschammer his sincere enthusiasm for all the beautiful and glorious aspects of life, for it is from the spiritual life of the West that he drew the enthusiasm he felt for the external world, and for everything that is great and beautiful in it. It seemed to him that the reincarnation doctrine was attempting to say that there is an eternal spirit in the human individual that is capable of leading a good and blissful life in the spiritual world, and that is being thrust into and imprisoned in a world not in the least suited to its lofty nature. if that were asserted people who are rightly enthusiastic about the beauty and grandeur of god-given nature of historical evolution and the ennobling passions and drives of which the soul is capable might well rise up and rebel with frosharma they might object against souls being subjected to reincarnation and thereby doomed to repeated imprisonment is that the only possible view of the matter We have to admit that there are indeed people, among the supporters of the reincarnation doctrine, who share Froschammer's idea that the human spirit descends from lofty heights to what amounts to imprisonment in the body. Views like this, however, are just a collection of vague ideas about repeated earthly lives, not what spiritual science is in a position to offer as the fruit of spiritual research. We must ask whether it cannot be acknowledged that the situation into which we are born upon entering life between birth and death is marvelously beautiful and grand and that the human being, as encountered in the physical form, is indeed a kind of image of the Godhead, as the Bible says. That would suffice to make us enthusiastic about it. Then, too, it would have to be admitted that we are not transferred to a prison but set down on being reincarnated in a wonderfully beautiful place into a glorious dwelling. Does it actually depend on the house and its size and beauty whether we feel that we belong there and can be at home in it? Or rather does it depend more upon whether we have traits that imprison us there? Does what we feel really depend on the house at all? Or does the fact that we as individuals inhabiting it feel it imprisons us, because despite its beauty and grandeur, we do not know how to use it and feel chained there? The fact that the house we live in is beautiful, and that the bad part is at worst that it is just we ourselves who are lifelong prisoners in it, is demonstrated by the spiritual observation that rises by way of imagination to inspiration and intuition, to true insight into the element in the human being that passes through different earthly lives. The first experience that we have as we go in reverse sequence from the life of mental picturing into the imaginative world is a world of pictures. Into this world, in every time, the most different kinds of people have entered If we take this imaginative world that can be revealed on the basis of careful concentration, meditation, and so forth, or upon the basis of special capacities of the soul, purely according to its manifestation, then it presents itself at first as the rudiments and remains of a yet external sense-perceptible world. The human being sees all kinds of things in that imaginative world, such as houses, animals, people, and this or that event that really play out pictorially. <clears throat> we have before us scenes and beings in a very living world of pictures. On the other hand, that imaginative world has the characteristic of belonging to the supersensible, in a certain sense, in that people cannot simply arbitrarily determine the symbols or pictures. They underlie an inner lawfulness that leaves its imprint upon them. Particular supersensible relationships are expressed in particular symbols and pictures. Where the imaginative world is concerned, we can be quite sure that in all circumstances we will find that a specific stage of our soul development, a specific capacity, lives in certain regions of the supersensible world, characterized in pictorial imaginative form as being handed a chalice, or being led through a river, or being baptized, and so on. It can also happen that we have unpleasant experiences, like seeing our various characteristics approach us, symbolized in animal forms, either as huge, terrifying beasts or small, scrabbling, crawling ones. Of course, it is impossible, since we find ourselves dealing with a world far richer than our sense-world, to give an adequate description of this first level of the imaginative world that the human being can reach, it must be said that on the whole, this world, even when it presents itself in its most unpleasant and horrible aspects, and we have to admit that such unpleasantness is symbolic of our own nature, is still something that the beholders find fairly pleasing. Its usual aspect is such that those beholding it overlook the quality of the experience and are quite happy that they are in the spiritual world at all. That is perfectly understandable. For even when it is distinctly horrid, the spiritual world entered is not hard to bear, being basically a world of pictures. Only if we lack sufficient strength and are thereby overwhelmed or weighed down by this world does it destroy our healthy soul life. A sense of moral responsibility or a feeling of responsibility toward all creation does not necessarily follow such viewing of the imaginative world. Indeed the exact opposite can be the case. It can happen, for example, that individuals who have reached a high degree of perfection in their perceiving of this world become morally loose in regard to their feeling for truth and untruth. There the clairvoyant is sorely tempted to take the truth pertaining to the physical world, lightly, and then not to develop a special sense of responsibility with regard to truth. It is, in a sense, a calamity that with imaginative clairvoyance something like an incapacity to distinguish between the objectively true and the false can occur. Standing firmly in that world and having the capacity to give it its proper meaning is a question of development. We can actually be quite undeveloped as human beings and still have the imaginative world before us. We can have many, many vision-like imaginations of the higher world, but we do not need to stand particularly high as human beings. As I said, it is a question of development. With time, development helps us to learn the difference between various imaginations, just as we learn to differentiate in the physical world. Differentiating in the physical world, however, occurs at such an early age that we normally do not give it any consideration. In the physical world we do not confuse a tree frog with an elephant. We learn to differentiate among various phenomena. We learn to separate and to arrange them to make the physical world appear orderly. People initially confront the world of imagination, as though they were in the physical world and were about to confuse a frog with an elephant, unable to differentiate between them. The world of imagination seems homogeneous, and it all appears to have a uniform level of importance. We must first learn to be able to give one thing more weight and another less. A peculiarity of that world is that it does not appear large or small to us because of its own nature but because of our own. (coughs) Suppose for example that a man is very arrogant. His arrogance is pleasant to him. But if the world of imagination now opens to him, the feeling of pleasure in his arrogance carries over to become the size of the beings he sees there. Everything in the world of imagination that represents arrogance or pride appears gigantic. To him it appears to have tremendous importance. On the other hand, something that would seem large to a humble person appears to him to be small like a tiny frog. The perspective that world presents all depends on the characteristics of the viewer. It is a question of human development that the proper relationships, intensities, and qualities of that world be accurately recognized. Everything there is quite objective, but people can distort it and then see caricatures. The important thing is that along with this knowledge of the supersensible, people must in a certain way experience what they themselves are. That means that people must learn to know themselves in an imaginative way. That is, of course, fatal, because the perspective for what is in the imaginative world is completely determined by the person's own qualities of soul. It can be directed in a false or a proper sense. What does it really mean to say that we have to learn to understand ourselves through imagination? It means that we have to confront the self in the world of imagination as an objective image among all the imaginations and images there. Just as we confront a bell or any other object in the physical world, we must confront ourselves in the world of imagination, in objective reality, as we truly are. This can be achieved appropriately only through ascending, by means of meditation and the like, from perception of the external world to the life in our mental images. This can be accomplished by imagining very specific symbols, as already mentioned, in order to free ourselves from the external world and learn to live in the purely inner life of mental picturing long enough to experience that life as something natural. We then notice something in the nature of a splitting of our being, of our personality. Often we have to pull ourselves together to avoid letting a particular condition develop too much. When this condition develops, we gradually come to experience a mental image in which we live and become wholly absorbed so that we no longer say, I am what my body is, unquote. Instead we have before us an imagination, quote, That is you, that is how you are, unquote. Then it happens that we occasionally notice how the other part of our being, which had not freed itself, acts as though it were an automaton, that we are living above and beyond it, but that it nevertheless has a desire to talk automatically, gesticulate, and so on unschooled individuals sometimes discover themselves making all sorts of grimaces because they have pulled something out of themselves with the imagination and the leftover part of them engages in all sorts of automatic behavior that is something that should not be allowed to go beyond the point of experimentation it must be kept under control we must always bring ourselves to the point of having our own being outside us as we do material objects. Regarding the imagination that we are to develop, it is of tremendous importance that we should already have developed certain qualities of soul, for all sorts of illusions crop up at this point in imaginative self-knowledge. All that is human conceit and all that comes from the human capacity for illusion, which may arise from the most varied characteristics, lurk in the background we can see all kinds of things in the imaginative world among the variety of things experienced there we naturally discover a feeling for ourselves and it is typical to consider oneself the cream of the crop when people see themselves in the imaginative world and want to draw a conclusion about what they were earlier such as they could now such that they could now be such an extraordinary child of humanity They arrive at the conclusion that at the very least they must have been historically a person of very high rank, a king, for example. It happens repeatedly. that clairvoyant novices become convinced that they were Charlemagne, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Marie Antoinette, or some other great historical figure in a previous incarnation. The reason is that these people, imprisoned in a body, though they are, seem to themselves in self-perception as so significant that they must have been extraordinary individuals in a past earthly life. They can even mistake themselves for a saint or someone equally exalted. At one point the Marquise de Pompadour, Marie Antoinette, Frederick the Great, the Duke of Reichstadt, and various other most impressive personalities were all gathered around the same table. You may laugh, but such things are in fact very serious. Such matters make us see that the way individual souls appear to themselves depends completely on their own imaginative experience. We learn to know our own being when we really free ourselves completely from ourselves, when we proceed with every bit of our energy to rid ourselves of the characteristics that we ordinarily recognize to be intolerable, that are bound to affect others as objectionable, that we carry around with us constantly and if we think about it objectively that we should not have we should take these matters to heart for it is not a case of saying things that will please everybody but of saying things that are true and that are meant completely objectively you can be sure that if we set about it objectively enough we have a full-time job criticizing ourselves and only in an instance of most extreme necessity compelled by outer circumstances Should we engage in the commonplace human activity of criticizing and complaining about others? Those who spend much time judging others or criticizing them may be certain that they are losing the time needed to discover in themselves what they must discover and to rid themselves of what they must rid themselves to attain true imaginative self-knowledge. If, after occupying themselves with spiritual science a long time, People ask why they have not advanced or achieved sight in the spiritual world. The answer that they could give themselves may be quite obvious. It might be that they should take care to abstain from all criticism of others, except when extreme necessity requires it, and above all to learn what such abstention really means. For many people forget, as they begin their day, what that means. It means occasionally to accept from others treatment that can be unpleasant and unfortunate in life. We must be able to accept it, for we know if we take karma seriously that what others do to us is something that we have inflicted upon ourselves. Karma requires that it be done to us. It takes endless effort to arrive at imaginative knowledge of ourselves. Then one begins to see why Froschammer's picture of imprisonment does not fit the facts. You notice that your life is actually such as to compel you to say that being incarnated, having the life you are living on the earth, could be beautiful, wholly wonderful and glorious, but you aren't in tune with it. You cannot seem to undertake everything you could with the body you have, and in the place you have been set down with it. You come to realize that you are living at a particular time and place in a beautiful world, teeming with grandeur, that you have bodily organs responsive to it and to all that is glorious and impressive. An unprejudiced feeling has to say that the world we live in is a paradise. We ought to say this even when things are going very badly indeed. It is not a question of how we are getting along, but of whether the world is glorious and beautiful. For if we are having a hard time, our karma could account for it. How the world is depends only on the world itself, and may not be judged according to our personal standpoint. <clears throat> our bodies and organs have been given to us for full reception of what the world has to offer, for the greatest satisfaction and delight. <clears throat> there is a vast difference between what we could be drawing from our life in this paradise in our existence between birth and death if we were to take all it has to offer and what we actually take why do we take so little that is because something is embodied in our corporeality that is small in comparison with the universe and that allows only the smallest portion to be taken just compare what your eyes see in the course of the day with what they actually excuse me with what they really could see and you have the ratio between what you might take in and what you truly absorb. Through such knowledge we experience our extraordinary relationship with spirit. When we come to know ourselves in spirit, we sense that we are not as well suited to it as we might be if we were to put our entire organization to use. Now we discover that something else in the cosmos must counteract what imaginative self-knowledge shows us to be. We come here to an interesting situation, and we must allow it to have complete effect in our souls if we are determined to have self-knowledge. Once we become truly familiar with ourselves in the world of imagination, it is impossible to think of ourselves, compared with the surrounding world, as beings of great and noble nature, as though we were from a higher world and set down in an earthly prison. Indeed, we find that we fail, instead, to measure up to this earthly prison. How infinitely more we could do with our bodies if we could use them completely. This is the way it actually is, and why the universe, which corrects our inadequacies that result from our failure to fully use our physicality, confronts what we are in the world of imagination. It would be tempting to compare the two spheres in full detail, The whole cultural evolution of humankind from the beginning of earth to its finish confronts what we are in the imaginative world. Why does the world of cultural development from the beginning of earth to its end stand over against what we appear to be in our own imagination, in an incarnation, in our existence between birth and death? If we want to answer this question, We come to understand that what we cannot become in a single incarnation has to be achieved in a series of many lives in the course of Earth's evolution. We have to keep coming back. We long for new incarnations so that we can gradually become what we cannot become in a single life. It is just when we develop insight and a feeling for what we could be in a single incarnation, but cannot be because of our inner nature, that we know what our predominating feeling must be as we pass through the gates of death. It must be to come again in order to become in the next and all following earthly lives what we cannot be in a single life. This must be the strongest driving force, this longing of ours for ever further incarnations during earth evolution. (laughs) This thought can only be suggested If you think it out further, you'll be able to see that the strongest confirmation of reincarnation results. That this statement can be made rests upon still another consideration. We can continue our efforts to enter the spiritual world. I've seen that we come purely technically to imaginative self-knowledge by withdrawing our attention from all external perception and devoting ourselves as described to the life of mental picturing. There is another possibility of giving meditation and inner concentration a certain turn. It consists of trying in uttermost faithfulness and conscientiousness to let what we call memory run its course. We need to do so for a few hours only, but the effort must be a truly earnest one. What are we really in ordinary life? We discover through our contemplation, as well as through logic and the theory of knowledge, that we are individually... An I capital. In ordinary life, however, we are this I in a very questionable sense. In ordinary life it is very questionable what fills this I. Our impressions of everyday life are what make us what we are at any given moment. People playing cards are what the impressions of cards playing, excuse me, people playing cards are what the impressions of card playing make them. They are not the I, then. They are, but not in the sense of being conscious of it. For what we genuinely have in our consciousness are the impressions of ordinary life. We can certainly try to reach our I, but it is something highly variable, flighty and fluctuating. We get behind what we are in reality only when we give ourselves up to memories and view them in such a way that, whereas they are normally behind us, they are now in front of us, That is an extraordinarily important process. Essentially, we are always the results of past experiences living in our memory. You can see in small matters that we are products of our memory. Imagine, for example, that you've had a day full of unpleasant events. Now imagine the way you feel in the evening and how the day has affected you. You are irritable and negative. You turn up your nose at things and so on. Compare this with a day full of satisfying experiences, and what are you? You are joyous, smiling, pleasant to be around, maybe even enjoyable. You are no more real on one occasion than on the other, since you are essentially the product of past experiences. When we review the experiences behind us, going backward through them, then we set them in front of us, and we are ourselves behind them. If you do that seriously not in a routine, mechanical way, but if you really live further into them in a very vivid way, even if for only a few hours, then something enters your soul, if it is sufficiently able to pay attention to itself, that one might call a fundamental tone that you yourself seem to be. We can sometimes experience that we appear to ourselves to be a bitter, acid-bitter, fundamental tone. If you then go to work on yourself thoroughly, which again really depends on your development, that process will rarely show you to yourself as a sweet being. Rather, you will, as a rule, find yourself to be a bitter being. You will find a bitter fundamental tone in yourself. That is the truth. Someone who is capable of applying the requisite attention to him or herself will, in this way, gradually arrive at what may be called an inspired self-cognition. The path leads through bitter experiences, but then one truly appears to oneself to be like an instrument badly out of tune. In the world of the harmony of the spheres, we usually cause a discord at first. As our self-knowledge increases, we realize more fully how incapable we are of making the most of this glorious divine nature from which we could derive so much if we were only equal to it. If we do such an exercise often and repeatedly, we are forced, as the decline of our life approaches after one has passed the age of thirty-five, to recognize from the peculiar sounding of our basic tone that it can be interpreted only as a sign that we have much, very much to do in the way of improving the efforts begun in our present incarnation. It can only be interpreted to mean that we must long with all our power to be clothed again in such a physical body so that we might correct what we neglected in this present life. (laughs) The desire to be reincarnated is one of the most important consequences of attaining self-knowledge. People who are repelled by the thought are simply revealing how far all that they have garnered of the glorious divinity of the nature they were born into falls short of what is possible. The second thing achieved is therefore the inspired human being, when individuals recognize themselves in the spiritual world of tone as they come there in the previously characterized way. What we experience there, on learning to recognize our own tone, is how little we measure up to what surrounds us in the great world outside. At this point we can go from the merely moral aspect to that of destiny and take note of how little we are able to achieve the inner serenity and harmony in life that we so desire. Individuals empowered by self-knowledge will, if they adhere to it, often have to admit how little they can find that peace and certainty in themselves that they most crave. To characterize this, we may be reminded here of a beautiful passage in one of Goethe's writings, in which he describes sitting on a mountain peak that exemplified the peaceful order of nature, and seeing spread out before him the, quote, oldest son of nature, unquote, granite. He senses the inner consistency, the grandeur of nature's lawfulness, its tranquility, which is in such contrast to the inward movement and the alternating between pleasure and suffering, between ecstasy and despair, that of the basic inner tone of human nature. When we begin with such a mood and look at the laws of nature that existed when human beings lived under quite different cultural conditions long ago and that still govern nature today, we will realize something that it would take ten or twenty lectures to deal with adequately. Just as cultural development is the counter image of the imaginative picture of the human being, the world of the true natural laws is the counter image of the inspired human being. Despite the element of maya, natural laws reveal to us the world of spiritual activity with the calmness and consistency that human error turns into restlessness and disharmony. And We identify them as such when we recognize the inspired human being within us. Now the thought may arise that if we recognize the laws of nature and their true essence, we will realize that earthly evolution transforms from one manifestation to another, from stage to stage. We also know that something inherent in those laws allows us to know that as we pass through our various incarnations, we receive what we must during Earth's ongoing evolution, since the possibility for it already exists within the scope of a single incarnation. We will find at the end of Earth's existence the conditions in the outer world that because of the inherent steadfastness and dependability of natural lawfulness will compensate for what we spoil as a result of insufficient development as inspired human beings. <clears throat> Thus we see a deep connection between what lies spread out as laws of nature, as the deeds of the spirit in the natural world, and what appears to us as a kind of counterpicture when we discover the deeper human being in us through inspiration. For this reason the inner serenity and harmony of the lawfulness of nature were always featured in esoteric life and in the mysteries of all ages as the model for our own inner order. It was not for nothing that those who attained the sixth degree of initiation were called sun heroes, to indicate that their own inner being had achieved such order and that they could just as little err from that appointed path because of their inner regularity and their inner certainty then the sun could stray from its course through the cosmos. If it were to do so for a single moment, indescribable chaos and destruction would have taken place in the cosmos. There is, of course, a further stage of self-knowledge. We could progress to an intuitive knowledge of the human being. That means an ascent into heights so lofty that it would be difficult to characterize it, or what appears in the external world as a counter-picture of the intuitive human being. Keep in mind the situation that is pictured in the preceding diagram. We have the possibility of looking at what we are inherently capable of being in that glorious creation, the external world in which we are, quote-unquote, imprisoned, not imprisoned, because it is a bad world, but because we fail so drastically to measure up to it. We see here that very important matters depend on correctly assessing all the cosmic relationships. They depend on realizing the basis of the spiritual knowledge of human nature that contemporary humankind can receive through spiritual science. Any objections to it are usually based on complete misinterpretations of cosmic circumstances. Finally, we must ask why it became necessary for us to be embodied. To further illustrate the answer, I will remind you of lectures by Dr. Unger on the position of the I, the I Am, in terms of our whole inner life. I will also remind you of what I presented on this subject entitled Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path and entitled Truth and Science. A slight effort in thinking is certainly enough to show us that that important beings exist behind the I, the I Am. But what we first experience, we experience only in our consciousness, precisely in our I-consciousness or self-awareness. This is interrupted every night in sleep. If we were only to sleep and never awaken, then in spite of the fact that we could be an I, we would never of ourselves notice that we are. Upon what, then, does becoming aware of the I depend It depends upon our experiencing ourselves as we are while we are awake, using our physical bodies and organs and confronting the entire physical world. We must experience our I-being in our body. If we never descended to earth to make use of a body, we would eternally sense ourselves as just a part of an angel, say, or of an archangel, in a way a hand feels itself to be a part of our organism. We would never be able to come to an awareness of our independent being. That would be absolutely impossible. We could develop all sorts of contents of consciousness, experience all the great aspects of the universe, but never could we develop an I-consciousness without entering a body. It is from the body that we have to derive our I-consciousness. When you study the sleep state and what dreams reveal, you see that there is something working in them that is independent of the I- imprisonment in a body and making use of our senses and our brain is essential to I-consciousness. When, as we have seen, we make very incomplete use in a single incarnation of all we've been given to use, we should find it quite understandable rather than surprising that clairvoyant consciousness says that to the extent we truly investigate a human I-being, to the extent that we see it in its true form, we will discover within it as its primary force, a desire to return again and again to the earth in a new body, in order to develop the consciousness of the I continually further and to make it ever richer and richer. In this respect we duplicate in our own individuality what the theosophists of the 18th century so often said, something that, when we transform it into spirit knowledge or pneumatosophy, can be extraordinarily helpful to us. How did theosophists of the 18th century, such as Ettinger, Bengel, and Folker, whose writings appear so primitive to us in comparison with the spiritual science of today, express the meaning of the spiritual activity of the gods, or, as they put it from their monotheistic standpoint, of God himself? They had a very beautiful formula for expressing the basic attribute of the divine spirit. They said bodily nature, the world of matter, is the end of the paths of God. That is a wonderful saying. It meant that the impulses inherent in the Godhead had prompted it to traverse many worlds of the Spirit and descend in order to come to a kind of end, an end from which it turns around in order to rise again. This end is the shaping, the crystallizing of divine beings in the bodily form. Translated into terms more expressive of inner reality, What the theosophists of the eighteenth century were saying was that, looked at from the standpoint of higher worlds, the spirit is seen to be thirsting for embodiment, and that this longing is stilled only when embodiment is achieved, when the end of the paths of God is reached in the corporeal and the return journey begins. This saying was a beautiful one, more illuminating and revelatory of the occurrences in the being of the human than much that the philosophy of the nineteenth century had to offer. Although there was completely excuse me, although there was no read that again, although there was absolutely no theosophical work or activity going on in the first half of the nineteenth century particularly, and none in its second third, theosophists of the older sort were still to be found in the first half of the eighteenth century. What was missing in their insight was something that was lacking due to suppression by the development of Christianity in the West the knowledge of repeated earthly lives. (coughs) The early theosophists knew that material embodiment was the goal of the spirit path of the Godhead, but they did not recognize it as applying to human beings also. In human beings they would have had to see that human nature is such that at every further incarnation the longing must arise for still further embodiment until our incarnations have rendered us mature enough to be able to go on to other forms of existence. With the ending of these lectures on pneumatosophy, I feel more keenly than ever how sketchy and merely indicative a picture could be given in these four hours. And the same thing holds true for the lectures on pneumatosophy as for the two previous series on anthroposophy and psychosophy that were meant to serve as indications only. You will find, if you pursue them, that they contain rich material that can be worked with in a great variety of ways. To do so you will need to look about you in the world and draw on many resources to corroborate what could be offered here in a brief and cursory form only, in a sort of charcoal sketch, instead of giving it the stretch of time it would have taken to form a complete picture. Because spiritual science is so comprehensive, if we were to proceed in the systematic way in which other sciences work, we would not have arrived after ten years worked in our section at the point where we now stand. <clears throat> we would perhaps be only at the point where we were at the end of the first quarter of the year. Let me say, as we end this cycle, that we count on individuals in our community having the serious will and the independent impulse to go on working on what was given here as indications. Much will surface in such independent work from those regions that could not even be mentioned and everyone will be able to find, in his or her way, the starting point for the work. Each of you will be able to convince yourself, when you proceed in an independent way, that our community will best stand the test if the feeling for inner independence becomes greater and greater. It is the feeling that you receive something that motivates you, in such a way that your inner being comes more and more to experience the world, that can be opened to humanity, through that spiritual stream we refer to as Theosophical. The end of Lecture 12. This was a reading of a set of actually maybe three small cycles entitled The Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. Twelve lectures on Anthroposophy, Psychosophy, and Pneumatosophy. Given in Berlin, the first set of four from October 23rd through the 27th, 1909. The second, four from November 1st through November 4th, 1910, the third cycle of four, from December 12th through December 16th, 1911, translated by the late Marjorie Spock.